Well, I think we'll get started. We're going to begin uh, in Chapter 3, if you um, follow a little pinwheel thing that, that I put together. I, I called this self-control because in a real sense, that's what it is. And what James is focusing on is the tongue, but that's a metaphor, figure of speech for what we say, what comes out of our mouth. And so as I'm not going to spend any time on this because I know we covered verse 1, but that warning, uh, maybe more of a caution, none of you should seek to become teachers, my brothers and sisters, because you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. There's that greater level of accountability, more responsibility, more accountability. And that's an interesting way to introduce this theme or this topic of controlling our tongue, controlling what we say. For we all stumble in many ways, and if one does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect Greek word is teleos, it means complete, mature, it doesn't mean sinless, able to bridle his whole body. Again, if you follow the figure of speech, uh, being capable of what you say is an indication that you can control your whole body, which is an interesting theme. Because one of the fruit of the Spirit, indeed, in the list of Paul's in, in Galatians 5, 22 and 23, self-control is the ninth one, the last one. And that capacity, that ability to exercise self-control is a sign of spiritual maturity. Teleos, a sign of maturity, of growth, of completion. But it's very fascinating that he chooses that. And I don't recall that we got into this very far, but... What we say can hurt people much more than perhaps what we do to them. Uh, and that I know we talked about. Now, he uses that, he, James, uses three illustrations of this point. The first illustration is in verse 3, where he chooses to talk about a bit and a horse. <clears throat> For example, he goes in verse 3, if we put bits into the mouth of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Now, I don't know if any of you here in the room or online have ever ridden a horse or know anything about them, but what he's saying is absolutely true. I mean, if you, a horse that's tame has a bit in its mouth, you can control that horse. Now, that's all James is saying. The bit can control the whole horse. Verse 4, his second example, a ship and a rudder. Look at the ships also. They are so large and driven by strong winds, so they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. Again, I, that's not hard to understand the illustration. I'm not sure I need to comment on it. Then he draws a conclusion in verse 5. Therefore, or so, also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of many great things, or of great things. The word great there is mega in Greek, of mega things. And so you, you have that idea that the tongue, which is such a small part of our body, is the agency of so much boasting of great things. How great, now he then kind of kicks off from that with his third illustration. First illustration, the bit and the horse. Second illustration, the rod and the ship. The third illustration is a little more complicated but a forest fire than a small spark 
How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire, like a spark, so to speak. And the tongue is a fire. Now that's a figure of speech. That's a metaphor. The tongue is a fire. It isn't a fire. But following what he says, the tongue is a fire. The world, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, standing the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. And you, you have to follow how he's making all these connections. But he's trying to drive home how powerful, how dangerous, how contaminating the tongue is, what we say, the words. And it's like the, the language, and I, as I was studying this on Monday, I was reminded because we just had the 4th of July, like spinning fireworks. Can you picture those in your mind? Spinning fireworks on display. They're set on fire, and this whole wheel burns and spins and so on. That's what James is saying. Our tongue is like that. But then he says something. What's the source of that spinning fire? Hell. The Greek word for hell there is Gehenna. There are two Greek words for hell used in the New Testament. Hades is one, Gehenna is the other. And this is Gehenna. And this is the only time Gehenna is used outside the Gospels. When Jesus talked about hell, he used Gehenna. So James, the only one that uses it, when the other writers of the New Testament, outside of the Gospels, that is, use the word, talk about hell, they use the word Hades. Now I'm telling you something you don't even care about, how you don't think. But he's saying something to us. What we say, if we do not control what we say, is sourced in the things associated with our enemy, Satan. And so he's, he's setting up something that, um, quite frankly, a lot of the New Testament writers don't talk about this. James talks about it three times in his epistle. Here is his most extensive discussion of it. What he seems to be saying, and I, I want to talk a little bit about this, and, and please feel free to interject if you wish. What he seems to be saying is self-control is a virtue of the Christian life. It's one of the fruit of the Spirit. And the evidence, the primary evidence that you really exercise that fruit of the Spirit, self-control, is do you have control over what you say? Do you have control over the words that come out of your mouth? I don't know. I can't remember if I used this illustration or not, but when my, my daughter was a, a little girl, one of her favorite movies was the Disney movie Bambi. And do you remember one of the characters? I can't imagine I'm the only one that had kids that like Bambi, but so I'm going to assume that some of you know what I'm talking about. But one of the characters in the Bambi cartoon movie was Thumper, who was a, a I think he's a rabbit, wasn't he? A, a rabbit. And there, in part of the movie, there's a bunch of things, and they're saying things, and the one character says something very unkind, and he says, "If you can't say nothing at all, if you can't say something nice." Don't say nothing at all. And I, I you know, I, I rarely do I quote Disney cartoons, but 
that kind of, in a way, hits it with James is saying. If you can't say something nice coming out of your mouth, don't say anything. Guard what you say because it hurts people. Guard what you say because what you say, if you can't control what you say, that is an indicator you're not exercising self-control. And it's interesting he chooses that because, my goodness, he could have chosen as an illustration of self-control the ingestion of wine into your body, which was a very common thing in the ancient world. And to have people get drunk was a very common thing, as it is today. And that is an indicator of self-control. Use of tobacco, use of drugs, pornography, whatever it might be. James doesn't choose any of that. All of that would have been a part of the ancient world. But he chooses what we say. So then he develops this in two additional ways. First of all, in verses 7 and verse 8, He illustrates how uncontrolling the tongue is. For every beast, bird, reptile, sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. And, you know, this isn't an all-inclusive statement, but it is accurate. Many animals have been domesticated, tamed, and people have them as pets. Through an ancient world, even much more much more characteristic of the modern world. But no human being, I'm in verse 8, no human being can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil. And that that little adjective restless has the, the strong sense of unruly, unsteady, full of deadly poison. Now that's interesting that he chooses that phrase full of deadly poison because restless, unsteady, damaging evil, full of deadly poison, immediately you're going to think of snake. That's immediately what you're going to think about because he just talked about the domestication of a lot of different animals full of deadly poison. So the tongue, like a a deadly snake, a deadly snake's tongue is full of poison. And if that bites you, that could cause the end of your life. And so James now is drawing that analogy out, embellishing that metaphor in a very powerful way. And speech is like that, full of deadly poison. And then the final point he wants to make is that our language, what we say, is thoroughly inconsistent. And here he's talking about he's talking about people who claim to know God. With it, I'm in verse 9, with it, the it is a neuter pronoun referring to the tongue, our speech. With it, we bless our Lord and Father. Two titles for God. And with it, we curse people. So I, I thought about this, again, when I was studying this on Monday, I thought about this like some snakes have a split tongue, a forked tongue. And so James, it seems to be, you know, belching that metaphor. Like a serpent's tongue is filled with deadly poison if it's a deadly snake. That, that forked tongue is illustrative of the inconsistency of our speech. With one part of our tongue, we bless and praise God. 
With the other part of the tongue, we curse human beings. And this is what James says, who are made in the likeness of God. And that's homoi uh, 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 usas in Greek. It's a very, very important word in the New Testament. But he's, what's he doing there? He's going all the way back to Genesis 1.26. When God created the human race, he created the human race in his image. In his likeness, he created them. And so James is going all the way back to the Old Testament. He's going all the way back to the creation ordinance of God. And reminding his Jewish readers, remember the first readers of this were Jewish Christians, reminding his Jewish readers of the creation ordinance of God, the value of the human being is determined by what God has said about the human being. Not what they do, not who they are, not the color of their skin, not their socioeconomic status. It's what God declares about human beings. All human beings are created in his image. And so James is just saying again, this this remarkable inconsistency of the human tongue, of speech, with one part of our tongue we praise and bless God, with the other part of our tongue we curse a human being who's made in God's image, in his likeness. Oh, it's a powerful thought. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing, verse 10. And then what's got to be one of the classic understatements of the Bible. My brothers and sisters, these things ought not to be. <laughs> and so it's, it's, a, it's a tremendous challenge. That, as it was relevant 2,000 years ago when James wrote this, in my judgment, it's relevant today as well. And then to drive home his point about this two nature, this inconsistency of the tongue. Verse 11, rhetorical questions. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? That's a ridiculous question. Of course not. A spring bubbling out of the ground isn't going to bring both salt water and fresh water. It's going to be fresh water. Can a fig tree, second illustration question, can a fig tree, my brothers and sisters, bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. And so those rhetorical questions are obviously very significant illustrations of this inconsistency. I mean, these rhetorical, of course not, is how we would answer. That's ridiculous, of course not. Well, then how can the human tongue, with one side, curse? Human beings made God's likeness, and in the same moment, praise and bless God. I wrote in your notes there, if you follow the printed notes, uh, but I wrote in the notes a wonderful psalm, Psalm 141, verse 3. Set a guard over my mouth, O Lord. Keep watch over the door of my lips. That's a prayer by the psalmist. That's really appropriate to what James is saying. I'm going to read it again, Psalm 141, verse 3. Set a guard over my mouth, O Lord. Keep watch over the door of my lips.
Now, I want to ask you two rhetorical questions. I don't want you to answer these questions, but have you ever said anything to someone that you later regretted? Now, don't answer that. If you are a human being, there is no way you could answer that question. No, I've never done that. If you're a human being, you probably skittering through your mind or dozens of examples of when you said, so I, can, I, I can remember so many things. A couple of times, I, 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 there are things that with my children, I wish I would have never said that when they were younger growing up. I said things to my wife I wish I would have never said. I said to people that work for me things that I wish I would have never said. James is challenging us to remember the theme of the book of James is what does the justified life look like? James doesn't tell us how to get justified. He's explaining what that justified life looks like. And similar to Paul in Galatians 5, which we studied a number of weeks ago, self-control is the final fruit of the Spirit, the ninth fruit of the Spirit. James has just illustrated this poignantly and profoundly. What he seems to be arguing is the test of whether you really exhibit self-control is what comes out of your mouth. Can you control your speech? Can you control what you say? Jesus talks about this to some extent in, in, in two or three different ways, but it's in the Sermon on the Mount. James, uh, Jesus says that with, with, with our mouth, with our mouth, we can, we can say things that are just as damaging as if we murdered that person. He says that in Matthew chapter 6. If you call yourself, if you call your brother a, a cursed word, you, you curse your brother, or you even call him or her a very derogatory term, he uses an Aramaic word there, says you're guilty of violating the commandment, you shall not murder. Which is, a, what? <laughs> what? But Jesus is saying, you see, when, when, when God gave the Ten Commandments to Moses, God was not only interested in what we do externally, but also what is going on in our heart. Because Jesus will say in another place, out of the heart, out of the heart comes damaging, hurtful, deceitful things comparable to that which comes from Satan. Satan is the father of lies. Out of, out of Satan's mouth, figuratively, comes nothing but lies. May that not be true of my disciples, Christ says, in effect. Every time I study this, I, I kind of want to skip this part of chapter 3. Because I, I'm always just reminded, this is an area I constantly have to work on. Because it, so quickly you can say something. I wish I wouldn't have said that. But once you say it, it's too late. You have to then go back and you know, ask forgiveness or apologize or correct what you said. I really didn't mean it that way. I meant, you know. But James is just issuing a tremendous challenge to us. The test of the fruit of the spirit called self-control begins with your speech. 
fast to listen, slow to speak. Exactly. That's how, that's exactly right. What he had argued earlier in this wonderful epistle. Well, one more time, Psalm 141.3, Set a guard over my mouth, O Lord. Keep watch over the door of my lips. May that be true of you guys. May that be true of me. If we are serious about our walk with the Lord, this is an important All right. Now, um, do you have any other questions? I can't imagine you have any comments. If you do, or anything. Fred is going to distribute a little uh, handout. And Glenn, if you want to put that up now, that would be great. Verses 13 through 18, and on the pinwheel, we're now at wisdom. But James now shifts to another topic. Then, as he often does in shifting to another topic, he does so by asking a rhetorical question. Now, the call here, thank you so very much, and you guys that are online, um, Glenn has graciously put up uh, uh, slides very, very similar to what I've just distributed to the guys in hard copy. And so what I want to do is I want to read this passage, which starts with verse 13, goes through verse 18. And then we're going to go back and kind of take it apart. It's not hard, but it is it is like a little bit the section which is, is, is a little bit difficult convicting because it's so much we have to think about in terms of application. But James goes back again into the Old Testament. Who is wise and understanding among you? And those two words, wise and understanding, are words used in the wisdom literature of the Old Testament. It's all over the Proverbs. It's in the book of Ecclesiastes. It's in uh, several of the Psalms. The Greek word for wise is sophos. In philosophy, it's that second part of the word, the lover of wisdom. Philosophy means lover of wisdom. The, the word for understanding is epistemon. We get, we get the word epistle from that, interestingly. But James is focusing on two words that everyone, regardless of who they are, everyone wants to be characterized as a wise person and an understanding person. The word for wise here or wisdom is, is a word the skill, the skills we need for practical living, the moral insight into decision-making, that special ability to gain insight into all of the complexities of life, I just fleshed out three thoughts about the biblical idea of wisdom. Again, very highly developed skills in practical living, the practical issues of life. The development of insights when it comes to decision making. It's that it's that capacity and that, that ability to take the complex 
and distill it down to the, the, the wonderful practical ways of skillful living. Who wants to, who does not want to be wise? And understanding, both in the Old Testament word for understanding here in the New Testament word, is, is the knowledge of the expert. It's the specialist. It's the person, and both, listen, both wisdom and understanding, so fast and epistemal, is not gained simply by reading books. It's gained through living life. But it's gained through living life in dependence on God. This is what the psalmist sought as he prays to God in, in uh, about 20 or 21 of the Psalms that we would put in the wisdom of the Old Testament. It's all through the Proverbs. And we studied Ecclesiastes a number of months ago. It's very much a part of the book of Ecclesiastes. Is a five-year-old wise? Is a five-year-old have understanding? No. I, I I do not know a five year old that I would I mean my kids and then my grandkids you know, I would never say they're wise and understanding. They live impulsively. They kind of do what they want, and then they just learn. Ah, you know, there are consequences to some of the things I'm doing, and I'm not going to do them anymore because mommy and daddy are going to discipline me for this, or whatever the consequence might be. So James is saying, do you want to be wise? Do you want to have that quality of life called wisdom and understanding? Here's how he answers this, this question. By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom could translate that in the gentleness of wisdom. You know, what he's almost saying is something like this. You say you're wise and you have the quality of understanding, prove it. Prove it to me. James, James, and this is really, really important. When a person in the Greco-Roman world would use the word so far, Sophos or epistemon. They're the two words for wisdom and understanding in the Greek language. Plato's and Aristotle's and, and, and Socrates would say, it's in my intellect. It's in my mind, and it's what I do. Excuse me, it's what I say and how I present arguments. James, no, 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 no I'm not interested in that. I don't want to hear discourses on, on, on Aristotle's great book on ethics. I want you to prove it by your conduct. If you're wise and understanding, I should see it in how you live your life. I should see it behaviorally. I should see it in your conduct. That's not how the Greco-Roman world talked about wisdom and understanding. That is how the Hebrew talked about it. That's what the book of Proverbs talks about over and over and over and over again. You look at a wise person, and it is not only what they say. More importantly, it's what they do. 
but it is done. The conduct of a wise person. Now, I, I want to I alter James's language just a little bit, but I think this is what he's saying. A wise and understanding person is evidenced by their conduct, and it begins with humility. It begins with meekness of wisdom. The word, I'm not sure I like them. ESV is a, is a translation I'm reading from. I'm not sure I like the translation meekness of wisdom. I think a better word would be the gentleness of wisdom, or even better, the humility of wisdom. So it's, it's the idea that wise understanding a wise understanding life is evidenced by their conduct, which is sourced in, begins with, ha- has, its, has its origin with a humility. Wisdom begins with humility. Wisdom begins with a meek, gentle quality to a person's life. What does that mean? What I mean, what does that mean? I think you understand wise understanding, James is saying. You say a wise understanding, I want to see it, prove it. I want to see your conduct. But it begins with a meekness of wisdom. Jesus, Jesus talked a lot about meekness. That's how we translate that word a lot. You know, blessed are the meek. Because to the Greek, the Greco-Roman meekness was meekness was considered by them, and they really meekness was considered by them a tremendous weakness. The Greeks never considered themselves to be meek, but for Jesus, it's one of the foremost virtues of the Christian life. I have a question. <clears throat> yeah, how does this tie into the the? Uh, Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Oh, I think it. I, that's a wonderful, a wonderful statement right out of the Old Testament wisdom literature. I think that dovetails perfectly with what James is saying here, uh, Russ. Mm-hmm. Because the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That mm-hmm. first step in wisdom, that would dovetail perfectly with this meekness, this humility, this a true understanding of who you and I are in relation to who God is. And that, that fear, um, both whether you're using it in, in the Greek sense or in the Hebrew sense, that word fear is for the believer, the person who's made the decision of faith with God, is really a worship word in our relationship with, with God. So I think it dovetails perfectly with this. I'm glad you brought that up. Well, nobody's answering my question. You must have thought it was rhetorical. So what, what, I, what I'm after and what I'm asking you to think about, and Russ, in a way, really brought it up by quoting from that oh, a couple of different places in the Old Testament. We see that. That wisdom is not thinking, the beginning point of wisdom, is not thinking highly of ourselves. It's not pride and arrogance. It's a, it's a dependence, it's a humility, it's a gentleness, it's a meekness. It's a self-understanding. I think that is one of the most powerful 
and I'm, I'm getting a little beyond what James is saying here, but he will talk about this coming up. I believe one of the most powerful aspects of a mature believer is an accurate self-understanding. I know who I am because I know what I used to be. I know who I am now. I'm in Christ, that wonderful phrase that's throughout the New Testament. And I'm in that, I'm in that circle of dependence, that self-understanding, because a proper self-understanding leads to a proper understanding of God. And that's really what James is saying here to us. And so what he does, and I'm going to read the rest of this. I'm going to read 14 through 18 now as a unit, and we'll come back. Because he lays the groundwork for what he's arguing in verse 13. First word of verse 14 is a word of contrast. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, literally natural, and demonic. Verse 16, for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. Verse 17, another word of contrast. But the wisdom from above is first pure, peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy, good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So I'd like you to go to the chart, if you're here in the room that I distributed, if you're online, look at the chart that Glenn's put up. I'm contrasting, and this is really what James is doing, I'm just putting it in a chart, contrasting heavenly wisdom and earthly wisdom, or if you want to put it another way, wisdom that's sourced in God and our relationship with him, and wisdom that's sourced in the world that's antagonistic to God. And so heavenly wisdom obviously has its origin in heaven. That's what James says. Where earthly wisdom, did you notice that? He, he spoke about it at the end of verse 15 as earthly of this earth, of this world. It's of the devil. It's demonic. The, the, the Greek word is from diabolos. It's diabolical. And so the consequence is it's unspiritual. The Greek word is psukikos. It's, it's natural. It's not spiritual at all. It's antagonistic to that which is spiritual. And so James is doing what the Bible does all over the place, what Paul loves to do, sets up contrast between the things of God and the things of Satan in this world. What are its underlying attitudes? For the earthly wisdom, the earthly wisdom that's unspiritual and sourced in satanic evil, produces bitter, bitter envy and selfish ambition or bitter jealousy, depends on your translation. Whereas the underlying attitudes of the wisdom is sourced in God, pure, peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy, impartial, sincere. The ESV translates that one a little bit differently, peaceable, Considerate, gentle, 
submissive, open to reason, a little bit of a different translation, full of mercy, and then, of course, uh, good fruits, impartial and sincere. And by the way, all of those words, with the exception of the first one, all start with an eta, or the English letter E. So he has some alliteration there. They all begin with the same letter, with, with one exception. And then the resulting actions of earthly wisdom, you see that at the very end of, of, uh, of verse 16. Disorder, dysfunction, and evil, vile practices. Whereas the resulting actions of heavenly wisdom, deed done in humble wisdom, that's verse 13, and at the end of verse 18, a harvest of righteousness. And so you're, James is setting up, again, this, this contrast that the Bible does all of the time. Jesus does it in the kingdom of darkness versus the kingdom of light. Paul does it in the works of the flesh versus the works of the spirit. Um, James is doing it here, and this is fairly unusual in the Bible. James is contrasting two types of wisdom. From my vantage point, I look at the right-hand side of the chart, earthly wisdom, and I wouldn't say that's wisdom at all. That's not wisdom at all. That is just the opposite of wisdom. I would say earthly wisdom is foolishness. Wouldn't you? That earthly earth is, is really, in effect, foolishness. But the way in which the world often looks at things, that's really true. You know, a wise person is a very ambitious person, a self-centered, self-aggrandizing. That's a big word. Well, but you know what they mean. Ambitious person. There's nothing with ambition. But, you know, and what we do is we pat somebody on the back like, you're going to be really successful. You're going to be a millionaire by 32, or whatever you, you say there. You're, and it's, it's the stoking of that. When God is saying, you know, the external things are important, but I'm really interested in what's going on in your heart. And that you get to the underlying attitudes, because you read that list of virtues in the underlying attitudes, those things are all in the heart. They're all the transformational things that Jesus is interested in developing in our life. And if those things are being developed in our lives, the envy and jealousy and self-centered, self-aggrandizing ambition will not be there. This is a very, um, for me, this is a very uplifting section of James. Because he's using those Old Testament words that we started with, wisdom and understanding, and developing them consistent with the Old Testament, but reminding his readers, who were Jews, they're the first people who read it, this is how this applies to you, this side of the cross. And, geez, and this is perfectly, perfectly, Meshing with what Paul talks about in the fruit of the Spirit. These are the things God wants to develop in your heart. And that's wisdom. So wisdom isn't just the outward facade. Wisdom starts with the transforming, transformed heart that then is evidenced by the, quote, 
good conduct done in humility. Back to verse 13. Now next week I will give you a blank chart and ask you to fill it out. That will be the evidence that you've gotten this. Okay? Any questions or comments about this? I mean, it isn't hard. Uh, it's just, it, it, it's a bit convicting because this, again, is the characteristic. Everyone wants to be wise and understanding. Here's James's discussion of what that really means. And it dovetails perfectly with the, with the Old Testament wisdom literature. Okay? I think some, some of the interpreters <clears throat> made a grave error by constantly using the fear of God when it, when it means the awesome respect. They should have, should have selected a better word because fear, true fear, is, is you're afraid of something, but to fear God is to respect Him. It's, and honor Him and stand in awe of Him, yeah. You have to discern, when you see fear in the Bible, you have to discern very closely what, what you're reading. That's right. And I, I appreciate you saying that. That's why I, you've heard me say that. I like to think of the word fear for the believer now, not necessarily for the unbeliever. But I like to think of fear as a worship word. It's how we are responding to God. I remember, I'll get in a bunch of real quick. I was having a discussion with a young guy, and he was talking about uh, the fear of the Lord. And, I mean, he really genuinely was afraid of God. And I was and I was talking with him. I was thinking about that for a little bit. I was thinking, what do I say to this guy? Because I don't know how you guys think about that, but the fear of the Lord. I'm afraid. I'm afraid of of a of a horrible tornadic type storm. You know what I mean? Do you know what I mean? I'm afraid of that. When I hear the wind getting up to 90 miles an hour and I'm in my house and I think of the old trees, I'm afraid of that. That doesn't mean I'm not trusting. I'm just saying I'm afraid of that. Is that my response to God? That's what I was saying to this young guy. And, and you know, if, if, if I think of uh, the kinds of things that could happen when I get on an airplane, you know, I could be afraid of that. Now, that is supposed to be neutralized by my trust in the Lord and so on. But when you think of all of those things that you, it's that fear of the unknown, how it could really harm you. Before you come to faith in Christ, that should be how you think of God. But you come to faith in Christ. Is that now our emotional response to God? I'm really afraid of him. Now that, to be honest with you, if God would want to, he could zap me with a lightning bolt, right? I mean, he could do that. But my relationship with him changes when I put my faith in his son. And now, as Jesus says to the guys in the upper room, I now call you my friend. I will be with you to the end of the age. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. They're not words of counsel that I should be afraid of him. My response to God is not now one of cowering fear. It's one of love because of what he's done for me. And that love for the Lord is is now tempering my fear of him so that my fear of him becomes worship. 
I hope you're following as I was linking all that together. Because I was a little bit disturbed by this young man's response, that he's afraid of God. Now, at one level, I mean, I don't disagree with that, but that's not your primary emotion in terms of your response to God. Your love for God tempers that possibly, that that fear, because when you read the things that God did in the Old Testament, you read the things in Revelation of what God's going to do at the end of this age. Genuinely, could be afraid, but I don't think that's the primary response God wants us to have. And so, Fred, I appreciate that comment. All right. We're going to crack into chapter four, and we'll get started on this, okay? What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Now, question. Is James writing to believers or unbelievers? Believers. James believers. <coughs> so, That's pretty hard. in these very early years of the church, they had quarrels and they had fights. <coughs> Been the same ever since? I, I mean, that, that shouldn't surprise you. <laughs> oh, yeah, I see that all the time. You know, I mean, and I, I don't mean to make light of this, but the, the, the two words that he uses there that are translated in English, quarrels and fights, they're intense words. These are, are serious words of schismatic, divisive kind of things that people struggle with. Let me back up for just a moment, if I can. Should that surprise us? Well, no, because they're turning the tables on, on their basic belief, and they're having their, their major conflict with, with, I've been doing this for thousands of years, and now you want me to do this. Yeah. I'm saying, I, I don't have to do that anymore. When people, and these are and the first readers of this were Jewish people who had come to faith in Christ, believing as the Messiah and all that, and they're turning their back on a lot of what their traditions in life had been. But even as they begin to mix it up with Gentiles, because these early churches would be mixtures of Jews and Gentiles and so on, would you expect there to be conflict? Would you expect to be divisiveness? Would you expect there to be disagreements? Now, the answer to that is yes. I mean, it's, you know, you, you, nobody should say, at least I don't think so, nobody should say, once you come to Christ, there should be no more divisive, no more divisions, no more disagreements. That's an illusion. And, and that, that kind of sense is dangerous for us because... When people come to faith in Christ and they get into a church body, what is they bringing into that church body? All of the baggage of their life. All of the past stuff of their life and the present characteristics of their life. 
Every individual person is different. Every individual person has certain idiosyncrasies and likes and dislikes and tendencies and, and sensitivities. And when you get two or three people like that together, you're going to have disagreement. Let's start in the concentric circles of our life. You get married. Should you expect disagreement? Yes. I mean, I've done many, many weddings in my life, and I, I, my policy is I never do a wedding ceremony unless I've been able to do the premarital counseling or I know the person who's doing the premarital counseling. And in premarital counseling, that's one of the things I spend a lot of time on. How are you going to handle disagreement? Because as soon as two people come together, and they come together, you know, let's just pretend they're both 21. Often today, people get married a little bit later in life, but they're 21. That's 21 years of living in another family unit. Maybe it was a single family, single parent home, or whatever. The, and they come together, and now they're going to form their own home. They're 21 years of very different experiences. And you have the difference between a man and a woman. Despite what the world is saying in 2023, they're different, very different, created in every single way differently, emotionally differently, physiologically different, and so on. So that, that is going to be a source of some end. The personalities and right brain, left brain stuff that they're now learning more and more about, that is going to create differences. So you better be prepared for dealing with disagreements. You better be prepared for dealing with quarrels. You better be prepared for dealing with what James uses here, the word fight, because it's going to happen. And you have to prepare for that. You have to determine how we're going to deal with it. Okay, now you go to the next concentric circle. You go to the extended family. And, you know, I don't know how you guys, a lot of you are married and, or have been married or, or, or whatever. Your wife may have passed away or whatever. But you can remember when you get to that next concentric circle, in-laws. That's very different. That's very different. And you've got all kinds of expectations and all kinds of things that are, and that can create conflict and disagreements and divisions, etc. Then you get to the church, the next concentric circle of your life. And, and, you, you say, and it's just all of a sudden, well, my, oh, my, oh, my. So what James is focusing on is a common reality of life. We live in a fallen world. Jesus hasn't come back yet and set up his kingdom of righteousness, etc., etc., etc. We live in a fallen, broken world where the disagreements and quarrels and fights are characteristic. You get four or five people together in a room, over a period of a couple of hours, you're going to start to see some disagreements about things. Most of them will be very inconsequential. But in a church, when you, when you deal with very important spiritual issues, very important doctrinal issues, you're going to have disagreement. And what Jesus Christ talks about in the Sermon on the Mount, and what James is going to be talking about in this paragraph that we'll get started with and finish next week, is Christians should show the world how to disagree and still be at peace with one another. A husband and wife that love the Lord, as they disagree 
and have different perspectives on things should show the world how to agree to disagree and still love each other. I can't tell you how many times Peggy has said to me, well, honey, we're just going to have to agree to disagree on this. <laughs> because we don't see things the same way. And that's, that's not bad. That's actually very good because I often hear my wife say something and I'll say, you know, that's really good insight. You are absolutely right. That's what we're going to do. You know, and it's just that it's that it's that interaction of, with disagreements and different sensitivities and different perspectives that the weaknesses that we have are countered by the strengths of another person where we learn from that. Disagreement can be used by God to grow us. Disagreements and divisions can be used by God to mature us. But we've got to be prepared for how we're going to handle these things. And that's why James raises this series of questions. Battles in the body of Christ. That's what I call this. And this seems like uh, these four verses... James is so harsh that it seems like he's talking to unbelievers. You have to keep reminding yourself he's talking to unbelievers. That's right. These are not unbelievers. That's right. James is in your face. I like that. And he's telling it like it is. Yeah. You don't have to wonder where he's talking about. That's right. You have to take a look at all the Gentiles coming into into the Jewish believers. The Gentiles were considered dogs by, right. by, the, by the Jews. I mean, here you are in your sacrosanct group of Jewish believers, and all these dogs come in. What are you going to do with that? You know? Exactly. Exactly. And then one of them might be a Samaritan, too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Let's let's look at the second part of verse 1, and then we'll probably conclude for the day because it's almost a quarter of. Is it not this? So now he wants to answer his question. Is it not this? Now, ESV has translated it this way. Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? The Greek word there is hedonon, H-E-D-O-N-O-N. And A-N, excuse me. What word do we get from that? Hedonism. We get hedonism from that. So you could translate that. Again, ESV has chosen, and actually I think that's a good way to translate it, but they've chosen to translate hedonon as passions. One translation has lusts. One translation has desires. So what is James focusing on? The reason there are external fights and quarrels and dissensions is because there's something going on inside of you. The outside battles are sourced in the inside battles that are going on inside your heart. It's your sin nature. It's your capacity to do that which is displeasing to the Lord. And this is a major theme of the New Testament. It's actually a major theme of the Old as well. But the sinful, rebellious behavior of humanity starts in their heart. That's why Jesus says, 
You know, it's what, what really defiles a person is not what they eat. It's what comes out of them. And that, that it's the stuff in their heart, in that inner thing, that this is what the Lord wants to transform. And so this is a powerful, powerful thesis. The external divisiveness is sourced in what's going on inside our hearts. And it's why in, in both marriage and in the extended family and in the church, it is our love for one another that tempers these internal struggles as Jesus is transforming us from the inside out. These inner hedonomes, these inner desires, these inner passions, these inner lusts are tempered by and then extinguished by the love that God gives us for him and for one another. And so this passage that we're going to get into next week in detail, that sets it up with these two rhetorical questions, is extremely relevant today. Because one of my strong feelings about so much of what's going on in some of our churches today is we are, we are sending the wrong message to the world. We are not sending the message that James is. We, we are sending the message that we don't know how to get along. The believers in Christ should show the world how to get along, how to agree to disagree, and still love each other. I don't know about you, but I'm not sure I see that in an awful lot of the American church today, broadly speaking. So there's a lot we want to say and deal with next week as we get into this. All right? All right. Okay. Thank you, Joe. I was waiting for, to make sure there's people alive still. Amen. In the okay. Everybody with me? I'm going to pray here, and I'll, I'll, I'll let you go because I got to get to my other class. Father, this is uh, this chapter, chapter three, which we covered, which we dealt with James and many discourse on our speech, which is the test of the quality of self-control, and then his section on wisdom and understanding. The true wisdom it only comes from God. It's sourced in God, the heavenly wisdom that He talks about. Lord, help us to seek the wisdom and understanding that comes from you. As we saturate our minds and our hearts with your word, we begin to learn what wisdom truly is. Help us to be men who love you, men who fear you in that worshipful, awesome sense, and men who desire to walk with you in loving obedience. Help us to be men of God, men of strong faith. And because we're men of God and men of strong faith, we begin to know what it means to agree to disagree with our, our, our life mates, with other members of our family, with our kids, with our extended family, with our church. How we handle disagreement is a very significant mark of spiritual maturity. So I pray for all of us online and here in the room to be the men of God you're calling us to be. Take care of us as you dismiss us with your blessing. And as we try to pray each time we're together, help us to represent you well. In the name of your son, we pray. Amen.